Good morning, church. Good to see you. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, if you're new with us, we've been studying through this book that really is strange to the ear of the modern listener, but uh, we have been unpacking it with the aid of the Holy Spirit, the Old Testament, and, and good scholarship that has gone before us, and we have found in each page the comfort of the gospel. Call at the same time to the challenge and the cost of discipleship. And in this chapter, we start a series within the book which will sound redundant. It'll be the same sort of thing over and over again. Here is the fierce attack of the evil one, and here's the way the Lord is going to sustain you. And it's just the way it's intended to be. As one scholar says, every section of the book of Revelation is written to harassed believers. Harassed believers. If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, the Bible says you will be persecuted. You are, if you're living for Christ, being harassed from the inside with temptation, from the outside in the world, even by your fellow Christians. If you're striving to live according to the gospel, you're being harassed. And today, Jesus speaks to you. We begin reading in verse 1, <clears throat> the last book of the Bible, if you're turning in your Bibles, or it's printed in the bulletin. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. For she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to His throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. <clears throat> now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb 
and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea, and there I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. A few years ago, the archbishop of the Church of Nigeria preached a sermon to his diocese. It was called, Where Do You Want to Finish Your Life? At death, will your life count? Where do you want to finish your life? He said in the sermon that he had been reviewing the history of how the gospel arrived in Nigeria. That in 1907, the gospel came by a man named Reverend Fox, theology professor at Cambridge, first of his class, first-rate theologian, but heard the call of Jesus to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He knew that call was for him, not for everybody, but it was for him, and he needed to go to Nigeria. The Lord's hand was so much on his life. The bishop said, Bishop Kwashi said, that uh, as he walked through the area of Panya, people came to Christ by the droves. He set up a church soon in that that area. And then as is common, as the gospel goes forth, it goes forth not only in word, but in deed. He saw so many sick people, people who needed medical attention, attention to their bodies, He wrote back to his younger brother, who was a medical doctor in in Cambridge as well, and he said, "I, I need you. You must come and help me. These people need your medical expertise. His brother heard the call for him, that that was what Jesus' words were commanding him to do. So he boarded a ship and made his way to Nigeria. Just before he arrived, however, Reverend Fox died. And despite hoping to see his brother, the younger brother, the medical doctor, arrived in town only to hear that his his brother had died and 
Soon after that, the younger brother also fell ill and died. The Church Mission Society, the the ministry that sent these brothers to the mission field, wrote the foxes, the, the parents. They too were in ministry. The father was a pastor. They wept, of course. They were in agony that both of their sons had died. They had no more children. But they had inherited a lot of land. And so they did what many people thought was a strange thing. They sold that land and made a visit to the Church Mission Society in London and presented the check. Said, we want to give this money to you. As much as we grieve the death of our two sons, we will only be consoled if the purpose of their life continues. Bishop Kwashi, reflecting on not just the foxes, but the many who have died for their faith in Nigeria. He opened the sermon by saying, every day we die for our faith in Nigeria. Reflecting on these lives, he said, were these men crazy? They were only in their 30s. Were they crazy? No, They had heard what Jesus had said, and they believed it. And they not only believed it, they were willing to stake their lives on the truth of Jesus' words. These men wanted to finish and end their lives well. How do you live and finish well? It is by believing the words of Jesus, which are in this passage, that give us an account of how past history has gone, how present history is really going, and how the future will end. And we believe it to the point that we stake our lives on it. We believe it to the point that we are willing to believe regardless of who doesn't believe. We're willing to believe regardless of who opposes us. We're willing to believe regardless of who tells us there is another kingdom greater than this kingdom of God that is triumphing over all kingdoms. It is to believe Jesus and do what he says every moment of every day, regardless of the price. Now, to appreciate how the text unfolds, we have to remember how or the view of history in the book of Revelation, which is as much as a finite person can grasp the view that God has of history. And it's just this, everything is present to God. There is no past or present or future to God. Everything is immediately present because he's decreed it all. Everything has occurred already in his mind as it has been decreed. But because he can accommodate to us, because he's created us, because he knows us, he also is able to speak to us in a way that conveys that history is being unpacked, that history is unfolding just the way he has planned for it, and it will not fail to accomplish its purpose, the praise of his glorious grace. 
So I've had to rearrange the way I'm going to address the passage, not following to, to, to kind of grasp a chronological order. We have to go down to the middle of verse 9 and then skip back up to other verses, but you will bear with me because you've proven yourselves to be good scholars of His Word. So where do we begin? But to find this encouragement, this assurance that if we believe, if we believe in the words of Jesus and practice them, that He will protect us and take care of us, even if we lose our lives in the process, if He will take care of us in all of eternity, where do we begin? We begin by looking in the past. We begin by looking at what God has done in the past and way past, even past creation in verses 7 to 9, we read about what happened before history, before the creation of the world. War arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. Now, Michael, we know from the Old Testament, from Daniel 10 and Daniel 12, and he's mentioned again in Jude, the New Testament book of Jude in verse 9, Michael is an archangel. Another archangel named in Scripture is Gabriel. Maybe there are only two, maybe there are more, but we know these two by name. Michael the archangel, we remember in the story of Daniel, Daniel and his four friends were taken off to Babylon. And there they believed the Word of God, and they did what He said, and they trusted Him despite the persecution that was placed on them. And Daniel, in God's providence, was raised to second in command in Babylon. And Daniel, however, eventually was opposed for his faith. People plotted against him. He never quit praying. He never quit giving testimony to the Lord. And on one occasion, he was praying. He's praying for God's help. He's praying for God's deliverance, praying for God's wisdom. And he wasn't getting an answer right away. And finally, a breathless angel named Michael shows up. <sighs> Sorry, it's taking me a while to get here. But I was delayed because I had to help Gabriel fight against the prince of Persia. The prince of Persia, the king of Persia at the time, wasn't much to speak of, so he had to be talking about a demon, which indicates to us that there are demonic forces that are, in, that are in control of various systems around the world. And he said, uh, I, it took both of us to fight him, and I'll go back and fight, it, fight him some more. But here I am because you call. You prayed. At the end of that chapter, as he's leaving, God says to Daniel, Michael is your prince. Why is Michael mentioned here? Because here is the story. Here's the story of this, this, this rebellion that occurred in heaven before the creation of the world. Apparently, the devil thought that he could run things better than God, and so he gathered up a group of angels, and they tried to make a run on the throne. And Michael and the archangel the other, and the other angels defeated them and threw them out of heaven. But then we're told that this same devil who was thrown out of heaven is the serpent, in verse 9, 
who is the one who tried to lead astray Adam and Eve, or did lead them astray. What is happening here? Well, we have learned earlier in their study of Revelation that God, that the devil clearly hates everything that God is doing. That God, the devil hates the image of God in us, and the devil hates this, this redemptive plan that God has of saving an innumerable people for himself. And he's always hated it. He's been jealous of it. And when he opposed God's plan, he tried to oppose it in heaven, he's thrown out of heaven. And when God makes the earth, he invades the earth, and he immediately tries to derail these people so that they would not do God's will and God's redemptive plan would not be seen. And then thereafter, at every point, the devil is opposing. The devil is trying to defeat. The devil is trying to wipe out the line through which the Messiah would come. He sends floods and he sends uh, he sends, he's behind plagues. He, is, he, is, uh, he sends despots who try to, to wipe out the people of Israel. And time after time, God defeats the devil's efforts to interrupt his redemptive plan. And here we have a name attached to one of those chief angels whose responsibility it is to protect the people of God and God's redemptive plan and to make sure nothing happens to interrupt it. Even to the point we have that strange story in Jude 9 where the devil tries to take Moses' body and Michael comes and protects the dead body of Moses. I want you to hear first of all very early in this message, I want you to hear God's commitment to getting you over the finish line. God's commitment to keeping the church and making sure she succeeds, preserving the people of God in His redemptive plan until we all sing the praise of His glorious grace. What love! And then it unfolds in Old Testament history. We don't have to spend as much time here because we know this history better. We've read a lot about it. But this description of the, the 12 stars in verse 1 is the Old Testament church. The 12 patriarchs in the, in the Bible were, were identified as stars. Sometimes Abraham and Sarah are called the sun and moon in Jewish history, and, and their sons are the stars, or Jacob and Rachel, Jacob and Rebecca. They were called the 12 stars of the sun and moon. And this is the Old Testament church that God is multiplying the promise that He made to Abraham and Sarah that I will make your descendants as numerous as the sands of the sea, the stars in the sky. So he references the 12 stars here to say that he is once, not only was he protecting the redemptive work of God before history, he's protected the Old Testament church. And he protected it against Satan, the dragon, the serpent. Pharaoh was called a dragon. He took her out of Egypt, he brought her into the promised land. It wasn't easy. 
The people of God have suffered terribly throughout history. The Old Testament history is full of suffering too. But notice that it is limited, verse 4. This dragon is incredible. He's intimidating as he has uh, ten horns. He, that's a symbol of great strength. He has, uh, he, he, he is, he's fire breathing. He has a deadly tail. And in verse 4, this tail sweeps a third of the stars out of heaven. Oh, that's amazing to us. But it's only a third of the stars. There are a lot of stars. There are so many stars that no human being can count them. And God is indicating to us that, yes, He is going to strike a blow against us. He bruises us. He hurts us. Sometimes He even kills us. But He can't utterly defeat us. We end up going to heaven. No matter how much He persecutes the church, it multiplies. No matter how much He's persecuted the Chinese church, it continues to multiply. The devil's power is limited. God demonstrates His love for the church throughout the Old Testament history back into prehistoric times that nothing, no one, no force is going to interrupt His redemptive plan. So that takes us into the present. Where are we in the present? God has a stainless record, a faultless record of protecting His redemptive work. Can we trust Him now? Well, in verses 12 and 13, he tells us that our battle rages on, that the, the devil continues to oppose us as much and more as he ever did believers in the Old Testament. Woe to you, earth and sea, verse 12, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. That's descriptive of the present time. He knows that the next thing on God's calendar is to send Christ to finally redeem the church. His time is limited. It's shorter than it's ever been before. So he's especially angry. And his wrath and opposition are severe. Some of you say, now listen. We are modern people. We are refined people. We're scientific people. Nobody believes in a real devil anymore. Maybe you don't, but if you don't, you're in the minority, even in the United States. Latest survey of Americans show that nearly over 70% of Americans believe in a real devil. New York Magazine's Jennifer Senior uh, interviewed Justice Antonin Scalia a few years before he died, and uh, he was asking her, she was asking him about his faith and how much his faith figures into how he deals with issues of justice. And uh, he answered this, you're looking at me as though I'm weird. Are you so out of touch with most of America, most of which believes in the devil? I mean, Jesus Christ believed in the devil. It's in the Gospels. You travel in circles that are so, so removed from mainstream America that you're appalled that anybody would believe in the devil. Most of mankind has believed in the devil. For all of history, many more intelligent people than you or me have believed in a devil. No Pulitzer Prize winner, Norman Mailer, 
said he believed in a devil. If you don't believe in God and the devil, I wouldn't say you're crazy, but you are intellectually malnourished. 2012, I heard a, an NPR, you know the program, the American, This American Life. Ira Glass did a program called The Devil in Me. He was intrigued. He and his staff were intrigued over the years with the number of people who mentioned that they sensed an evil force around them. So he, he started interviewing people. And he asked them what they, if they had ever heard an inner voice that made them uncomfortable, as if it were evil. Here are some of the responses, not all of them. A man says, I certainly know the voice you're talking about. Another one says, the voice is irresistible, always. I'm in the thrall of that voice. A woman said, totally out of control. It's got this life of its own, and I can't tame it anymore. I asked one person, do you feel like the voice is is winning? And she said, yes, I'm in some serious trouble, to be honest. The devil is real. He's crouching at the door, the Bible says. He's crouching at the door of your heart, trying to attack you. If you are not a believer in Christ, he is delighted that you're not. He goes to great great, great, uh, efforts to keep you from hearing any more of the truth, to to cause you to to be cynical. He, he He tries to distract you. If you are a believer, he's constantly tempting. The Bible even says that it is possible as a believer to fall under the power of the devil and to do his will, not to be possessed by him, but Paul said to Timothy, you know, there are some people who are causing divisions in your church, Timothy. They're believers, but listen, this is the way you need to pray for them. Pray that God would would grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth so that they would escape the snare of the devil being held captive by him to do his will. The devil is delighted to use believers, stir up dissension, spread gossip, create disunity. The devil never never fights fairly. The devil is real. And the devil hates us and he opposes us. He hates the image of God in us. And he hates God's redemptive plan. Who is a match for him? None of us is in our own strength. None of us is sufficient to battle him in our own strength. But the Bible also says, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And John puts it this way in verse 14, the woman was given, the woman of course is the church of Jesus Christ from prehistoric times to Old Testament times to the present time, the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. I don't know what time, times and half a time or 1260 days is or three and a half years or any of the other numbers that we have talked about relative to this, but they are descriptive of this time that we're in. And this time is limited and it's numbered. 
And the promise here is that Jesus Christ, with his angels, continues to protect his church just as he protected the Old Testament church and caused them to be borne up on wings like eagles. The devil cannot stop the forward movement of the kingdom of God. And if you're in his kingdom, if Christ is your Savior, the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, nothing, no weapon formed against you can defeat you. So why do we act like it can? Why do we turn on each other in fear? Why do we act as if our history, that the history of, that our history as Christian people is tied up, bound up with the history of this nation, for instance? Or that our history as a Christian people is bound up with the economy, or bound up with our personal success, or with our children's success? And when we do, the devil succeeds because this is what he does. He puts us on the sideline. He doesn't wipe us out. He just mutes us, puts us on the sideline, causes us to get entangled in ourselves. And, and then we start bickering with each other and fighting each other. And he's utterly delighted. But when you truly believe Jesus' words... And commit yourself to following them regardless of, of what happens in history, regardless of what people call you, what labels they attach to you, however many social circles exclude you from. Then you will live in a way that rattles the gates of hell. Jesus said, on this rock, the rock of the apostolic confession, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You understand what that means? The gates of, the gates of hell. The, the, the devil is trying to protect hell with his gates. It doesn't mean that the gates are moving like this. Gates have to prevail against attack. So the gates of hell will not prevail against the attack of the gospel profession and those who are committed to the gospel, those who are holding on to the gospel and obeying and no matter what, rattle the gates of hell. You're not rattling the gates of hell if you're wringing your hands over what's going to happen next in this country politically. Not that you shouldn't be concerned, you should pray like Daniel did. But we've got a kingdom that has lasted many thousands of years longer than this one, and it will continue until Jesus triumphs. We should be careless people, fearless people. Because as the text goes on to say, the future is assured. We didn't read the last part of chapter 11 because we've already covered that when we looked at the seven trumpets, but you can look back there and remember that someday we will give thanks to the Lord God Almighty who is and was and is to come. And verses 10 and 11 describe that, that time in a different way. 
I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And this verse, let this verse ring in your ears. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. How will we prevail? by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and by not loving our lives even unto death. By the blood of the Lamb, there is only one way you will face the judgment seat of God, and that is to be washed in the blood of Christ. All of your shame, all of your sin, all of your fears washed away in the righteous blood of Christ. There's only one way you'll stand before the accuser right now and in the future. See, he seems to indicate that, there, that the, the, the devil, after, after all of our records are revealed in heaven, after, after everybody in the cosmos has heard every word we've said and seen everything we've done and reviewed every thought we have ever thought, it'll be clear to us that none of us deserves to be in heaven and the devil, it seems, will perhaps take advantage of that and say, see, none of these belongs in heaven. But on that day, we will conquer, not by our righteous record, but by the blood of the Lamb. The devil was attacking John Bunyan in his conscience on one occasion, similar to the way he did with Martin Luther. And he said, you can't get into heaven for this. You can't, you did that, you thought that, and he was accusing, he vividly saw the devil accusing him before the throne from the record of his life, and Bunyan said, there is one entry you have neglected to read. It is this one right here, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all our sins. We will conquer him by the blood of the lamb, and we will conquer him now and then by the word of our testimony. Don't let the devil sideline you. Open your mouth and say something. You say, I'm not a theologian. I'm not very articulate. I don't know what to say. I can't remember the four spiritual laws. I can't remember the bridge diagram. I can't remember the five points of, of uh, EE. It doesn't matter. Say something. Most people don't remember what you said anyway. The Holy Spirit, period, but also in witnessing. Most people surveyed about what do you remember about the person who led you to Christ? Well, I remember they said something about Jesus dying for me. I remember they said that Jesus is my hope. They don't remember the whole thing. The Holy Spirit takes it and uses it. Uses it. And, uh, and, uh, and the more fumbling, the, 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 as inarticulated as it may be, the Lord loves to use weakness to shame the strong by the word of their testimony. And because they loved not their lives even unto death. Here's our sticking point. We love our lives. We love our lives, most of us, in this room anyway. Maybe so, not so much the majority of our friends in Memphis. We love our lives. 
and we want them to stay just the way they are. We don't want anybody to mess with them. Nobody to tread on our turf. Nobody to offend against our sensibilities. We want everything to stay just the way it is because that's the way we like it. We love our lives. The gates of hell don't tremble for those who love their lives. The gates of hell tremble when Christians say, you can take everything I have. You can call me anything you want. You can destroy me, but I will hold fast to the commandments of Jesus and do them no matter what. Very recently, a Wall Street Journal reporter has given us insight into the release of those, well, you may remember back in 2014, 300 Nigerian girls at girls' school begun by a church in Chibok. One day after they had taken their exams, they, Boko Haram, a terrorist organization, burst in and abducted 300 young girls, most of them in their teens. The oldest was 24. Someone in uh, Western in West Africa got the word and put it out on social media and by the miracle of social media, hashtag bring back our girls swept the world. Hollywood celebrities began to speak up. Seven nations aligned to send in drones and satellite, uh, and, and satellite surveillance to try to find these girls everywhere. People looked and then after a while they forgot. But two and a half years later, Almost three years later, a hundred of those girls were finally released. Very little of it in the news. People haven't really been concerned about what happened. The Wall Street Journal reporter thinks that one reason is, or I'm, I'm inferring from the way he writes, that he thinks it's because of their Christian testimony, that it's just, it's just too hard to believe how they survived, how they overcame their abductors. Digging in over the last number of years into the story, interviewing the girls, this is what he has discovered, that um, they daily whispered to one another, just be faithful. Daily, they would pray into their hands or into a cup of water so that the, their words would be muffled, but they prayed nevertheless. Though their, though their captors said, you must not, we'll kill you if you do, they continued to pray, we'll kill you if you talk to one another about Jesus. We'll kill you if you don't convert. We'll kill you if you read the Bible. They had hidden the Bible. They passed it around. They memorized the book of Job. 
They eventually took the journals that they were supposed to put their Muslim lessons in and they took pages out of the back of it and started copying down scripture. They all copied down Luke 2. You know why? Because they identified with Mary who gave birth to Jesus against all odds and was protected by the archangel. They sang Christian songs. And then one day, they just lost their fear, they said. They lost their fear of their captors. So they prayed out loud. They sang out loud. They quoted Scripture out loud. And the terrorists couldn't take it. Not all 300 were released They're unaccounted for. Perhaps they were killed. But 103 never bowed the knee. Though they were told their parents had been killed, that their homes had been torched, that there were no churches left, and their cities were now flying the flag to Boko Haram, they didn't Boko Haram, they didn't care. They just continued to whisper to each other, just be faithful. And faithful Faith, he says, the author of this article says, faith became the language of their resistance. You ready to shake the gates of hell? Then hide under the blood of the Lamb. Speak up with a word of your testimony. And let us love not our lives even unto death. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us to be faithful where we are. These young girls couldn't do anything except whisper, just be faithful and pray, worship. And it rattled the gates of hell. Help us, Lord, to renew our commitment to worship. Help us, Lord, to renew our commitment to prayer. Help us to renew our commitment to evangelism. Help us to renew our commitment to living in every moment of every day, no matter how common the activity is that we are involved in, living it by faith and obedience to you. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come and you would come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen.